0: Hi, I'm Michael Rivo, host of Blazing Trails, and I'm here at Dreamforce. I just walked through the Dreamforce arch. There's tons of people and the energy is amazing. Let's hear some sound.
1: It's a dream. <laughs> it's fun, it's great. It is one of the biggest conferences, so lucky to be here.
0: I am Pedro Jauregui from Mexico. Yeah, this is my first Dreamforce. It's very crazy. It's- I
1: am Yvonne Namutosi, and I'm from Uganda in Africa. It's amazing. We have always dreamt of being a part of Dreamforce. So the fact that we're here this year is totally amazing.
0: And I'm on the move again at Dreamforce. I imagine most of us have been thinking about the economy, inflation, markets, what the future holds. So we're going to hear from former Treasury Secretary Lawrence H. Summers, Larry Summers, and he'll share his perspective on how the economy got here and what to expect moving forward with Salesforce co-CEO, Brett Taylor. Okay, let's join the conversation.
2: I think most of you know uh, Lawrence Summers. Um, May I call you Larry? Please. I'll call you Larry. But I'm going to give uh, a little bit of a brief biography, which is quite impressive. So uh, Secretary Summers is a world-renowned economist. He's had a 30-plus year career serving three administrations, Um, he's been the Treasury Secretary under President Obama, the Chief Economist of the World Bank, the Director of the National Economic Council, and the President of Harvard University, of the Stanford of the East, is what I like to call it. (laughs) Uh,
1: so, uh... You do have a better foot... You you do have a better football team, but I'd stack our history department up against yours.
2: (laughs) That's probably true. So, uh, Larry, you have been vocal on a number of issues, and I think that's perhaps an understatement. Um, And, in fact, I think over the past couple years, I think uh, most prominently, you're one of the first to sound the alarms on inflation. In February 2021, um, you, in a Washington Post op-ed, argued that Biden's COVID relief plan would, in your words, set off inflationary pressures of a kind not seen in a generation. Um, I remember at the time um, your article was not particularly well received um, by many of your peers and certainly by a lot of people benefiting from the the money flowing from the sky that so many businesses benefited from. Um, And I like to say so many of your opinions are controversial and so many of them turn out to be true. Um, So I think that's why I'd like to start this discussion, which is. In February 2021, I think it's safe to say you're a bit of a contrarian in that opinion. Um, I think most people in the room would say you were right um, at this point. What did you see at the time? And I guess the other question is, you know, we're, uh, what, why did so few other people see it? And, you know, how does that sort of impact your view on the current state of the economy?
1: So let me answer that in two, in two ways, Brett. Um, for better or for worse, and sometimes it's been both, I haven't extremely strong principle that I always try to separate what I see and forecast from what I want and hope for. And I think that is central to seeing the world clearly. I think there's no such thing as a bad fact. There's a fact which you wish was different, but you'll almost always be better off if you see the world more uh, clearly. And so I bring that attitude. And frankly, at a moment of substantial social distress, at a moment of huge political relief, at a moment when there was a new administration with high hubris, Those were all moments when it was natural to think we could do and have it all. And that cognitive bias was, I think, an important part of what many other people who at different circumstances would have had a different view would have gotten wrong. If all that $1.8 trillion had been for um, new toys for the Pentagon, there would have been plenty of my friends who would have figured out that it was quite inflationary. But because they saw it as realizing a dream deferred, they found ways to get comfortable with it. That's an important part of it. The other part of it was just um, the secret sauce of economics is arithmetic. And I did
2: simple arithmetic. Instead
1: of saying, "If that were true,
2: maybe we'd be better at predicting the economy."
1: Well, okay, but well, at least my secret sauce of economics is 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 arithmetic. And instead of saying we had less stimulus, we had too little stimulus before, so let's have a lot of stimulus now. I did a kind of simple calculation. I said that payrolls, total incomes, were running about thirty billion dollars a month below trend, and that the two stimulus programs from uh, the winter of 2021 were going to average about $150 billion a month. And so I said, if you try to fill a bathtub that's $30 billion a month empty with $150 billion of water, there's going to be a lot of overflowing, and it's going to make a mess. And it's going to be harder to clean up than it would have been to prevent. And I basically insisted on doing that arithmetic rather than just kind of trying to qualitatively uh, think about the situation. And I think that's why I got it right. And by the way, um, I nobody eh, nobody bats anything like a thousand in all this and. What I actually said in that Washington Post editorial was it risks an inflation the likes of which we haven't seen in a generation, because it's not that I felt that I could be certain and it's not that I'll always be right uh, in my forecasts or that in anything that's about predicting uh, human behavior, anybody's going to get it right um, anything like 100 percent of the time.
2: Well, let's, uh, you turned out to be right, so let's talk a little bit about how the world's going to fix it. Um, It's interesting, you know, you have a lot of people in the room, I think sophisticated business people, but not economists. Hopefully pretty good at arithmetic, though, so um, I think we we all pass that as courses in elementary school. You know, we're in a period of historically low unemployment, at least here in the United States and many parts of the world. And uh, in June, you told Fortune to curb inflation. We'll need five years of 6% unemployment, or one year at 10%. And you can also see the negative impact of raising interest rates in the stock market, which are obviously impacting a lot of uh, companies in this room. So you're in a room full of people who probably aren't economists. There might be a few in the room that I don't know of. We don't really have an economist track at Dreamforce. Maybe we should start one. But for many people in the room, it feels like the pill that you and I think other experts are rightfully asking us to swallow is pretty bitter. You know, so explain to us, you know, what are the steps that we need to take? Explain to us why they're necessary, given, I think, you know, the negative consequences of what you're suggesting. And also, I guess, the obvious question, and uh, and maybe this is a soft landing point, or I'm not sure, is this the only way? Uh, you know, do we have to hurt this part of the economy to fix that part of the economy? I mean, that's—I think a lot of the conversation I hear around uh, you know normal people's uh, dinner tables nowadays. Those are all exactly the right uh, right questions.
1: I think um, start with um, two painful facts. Um, George Bernard Shaw said that second marriage is the triumph of hope over experience. <laughs> I, don't know whether, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I do think the evidence is that soft landings are the triumph of hope over experience. There's never been a moment in a major industrial country when inflation was above four, unemployment was below four, and we didn't have a recession within two years. So... That would be what one would want to significantly bet on. You can't stop a speeding car on an icy hill without a fair-sized skid. And in the same way, there's a proposition in economics known as Psalm's Rule that whenever the unemployment rate goes up by half a percent, it goes up by 2% or more. So those two facts together tell me that we're unlikely to be able to achieve a soft and easy landing. Where are we? There are a million inflation figures, and there are a million ways of cutting it. And if you take this out, and you take that out, and so forth. But here would be the simple fact that I think you should keep in mind. Last month, core inflation ran at a 7% annual rate. That month was faster than the quarter. The quarter was faster than the half year. The half year was faster than the year. And the year was faster than the previous year. That says to me that there's a lot of inflation we're going to have to take out of uh, this system. And that if we don't take it out, it's gonna be worse uh, later. Most of you have probably done at some time in your life the same dumb thing I've done, which is the doctor prescribed me antibiotics and the doctor looked at me as I was leaving his office and said, make sure you take the whole course of the antibiotics. But I thought I was smarter than he was And I decided that when I felt better and didn't like the side effects, I didn't like taking medicine, and so I'd stop. And then my strep throat or whatever it was came back, and it was harder to cure the second time because the bacteria had become resistant. Well, monetary policy is the antibiotic, and inflation is the affliction. And if you don't do it, then... It gets harder over time. That was the mistake that the country made in the 70s. We had four false starts during that decade at stopping inflation, and at the end of the day, we had to have interest rates that were in way and in, well into double digits, and a recession that pushed the unemployment rate to close to 11 uh, percent. I don't know what the exact right uh, calculation is the one you referred to was an estimate from some model. That model could be too optimistic or too pessimistic, but I think the broad lesson is that if the bathtub is overflowing, you can't make it stop without turning off the, without turning off the faucet. And that means you can't adjust the temperature of the bathtub as well as you want to, until you've figured out a way to do some uh, to do uh, some draining. That metaphor may be getting a bit much, but um, <laughs> uh, but I think you but I think you see the point. So yeah. I'm not committed to the numbers. You know, the Fed is going to meet today. By all accounts, it's going to raise rates by 75.
2: Uh, Basis Can I interrupt? Do you think that's right? Should it be more? It
1: I, think be- that's, I think what's important is that they raise rates very substantially, given that inflation has accelerated a lot. And whether they raise rates, um, you know, how much they raise them this month and how much they raise them next month, I don't think is... Uh, a hill to uh, is it is a hill to die on the market has gone from saying a year ago that they would have raised interest rates by half a percent um by the beginning of 2023 to saying they're going to raise interest rates to four and a half percent that's a huge adjustment my guess is that there's still more adjusting uh to uh, come, given the persistence of uh, of uh, inflation, but I can't uh, be I can't be I can't be sure uh, of that. I mean, here's a here's another fact: the best way to look at a market is to look at where there's actual transacting. And so the number I like to follow is the average wage increase for people switching jobs and how different it is from the average wage increase in the economy. And that number is now eight and a half percent. And it's more different from the average of the economy than it's ever been since they started uh, creating the statistics. Now, My life experience tells me that if Salesforce is having to pay way up to hire new people sooner or later and, I hope sooner, um, it's going to have to pay up the people it already has because it's going to need to maintain some kind of... There's a
2: lot of Salesforce employees that are recording you right now. Yeah, I understand that.
1: I understand that. There are a lot of them, and there's only one of you. So I'm... uh, (laughs) So I'm pandering. Um, I'm 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 pandering appropriately, Brad. Um, (laughs) But look, uh, we've got... So if you got wage increases running somewhere in that range, and we've got an economy where here in Silicon Valley, productivity might be growing pretty fast, but in the economy as a whole, it's not. Maybe 1%, maybe 1.5%. That's not a sustainable inflation situation. And that's why I think there's going to have to be uh, some uh, substantial uh, adjustment. The good news for the United States is um, that uh, we need to make an adjustment and we'll get through the adjustment and we're the place that immigrants from all over the world want to come to. We're the place that's got the best universities. We're the place that for the most part has uh, the greatest entrepreneurship and the strongest set of companies uh, headquartered here. And We are energy independent. We are not dependent in the way that Europe is on a pipeline controlled by a tyrant. And that puts us in uh, a stronger position uh, to weather this uh, and uh, work through this. And so I've said some negative things, and... If we started talking about the political economy of the country and all that on January 6th, I would would have more negative things to say. But never forget that you'd really rather have the set of challenges that we face than the set of challenges that any other major country uh, is facing. And you know, people say, we've got all this crazy politics, we got all this crazy stuff, is the dollar gonna maintain its status? Well, hello, the dollar's never been stronger. And there are a lot of reasons for that, and it's complicated, but I would leave you with, I would wanna give you one very simple economic truth. Would you rather live in a country the capital is rushing to get into Or would you rather live in a country the capital is rushing to get out of? And we are the country the capital is rushing uh, to get get get
2: into. And that's a very powerful thing. Well, it's it's an interesting segue to another topic I want to ask you about, which is China. Um, And it's a very complex situation, but I, I think it is interesting because if you look at China pre-pandemic and China post-pandemic, it does feel a lot has changed. If you look at the COVID zero uh, policies, you look at the supply chain crisis that I know is impacting so many companies in this room in part related um, to those policies. And then also obviously a deterioration in US-China relations around so many topics from chip manufacturing to Taiwan, to intellectual property. Give us your take on China, both the economy, and then also, if you don't mind, What do you see in the next five, 10 years of US-China relations as well, um, which is obviously very tied to the connection between the two economies?
1: Um, In the same way that I said that we risk inflation uh, 18 months ago, I would say today that there is a substantial chance that people will look back at the prevailing view a year and a half ago or two years ago about China surpassing the United States in the same way that we look back today at the view in 1990 that Japan would be number one or the view that was enshrined in every introductory economics textbook in 1960 that Russia was likely to surpass the US economy by 1990 with a certain recognition that it's true, but puzzled bemusement as to why we think that. The best way to predict when an emerging market is gonna submerge is when its billionaires are rushing to get their money out. And but for capital controls, that would be happening on a massive scale in China today. They, have had extraordinary difficulty with uh, COVID, and it's not clear yet that uh, they have a vaccination strategy that is going to work their way past that. I've been asking for i uh, I've been asking for almost since the pandemic began. When's it going to be possible for me to go to China without a 17-week? Uh, quarantine and the answer has been constant nine months from now and that's the answer today Uh, also Uh, it is an extraordinary thing that they have a one-child policy they eliminated the one-child policy and the birth rate is lower now than it was when they had the one-child policy that is not a vote of confidence by the Chinese, by the Chinese people uh, in uh, their future. There are enough empty apartments in China to house the entire population of Germany. The real estate has been 28% of their economy. If you look globally at financial crises they tend to have their roots in real estate. Think about Florida land in the United States in the 1920s. Think about what happened with subprime uh, mortgages in the United States in 2009. There are, think about the SNL crisis. There are plenty of other uh, examples. So I think China is gonna have a very, very difficult time ahead. And I think the question for us is, are we going to gloat? Are we going to provoke? Are we going to set ourselves up to be scapegoats at a moment when the Communist Party's legitimacy from growth may be slipping away and hypernationalism may be the most natural alternative. Or are we going to not be placing tariffs, not be sitting in judgment on their human uh, rights, maintain the approach that we have pursued successfully with respect to two Chinas, one China, the Taiwan policy for the last 50 years? Or are we going to make it maximally easy for them to maintain unity and purpose by defining themselves in enmity to us? Everyone who has managed to be in a family successfully understands that sometimes there are kind of things that are more important than being right. And I think that is an insight we need to appreciate with respect to uh, China. I always say, and I think about it in, country terms, but there must be a business version of this, that a strategy has three elements. You have to define what you want. You have to define what your means or leverage are to get what you want. And you have to define what you're prepared to sacrifice or what concessions you're prepared to make as part of the strategy. That's what is part of getting what you want. That's what a strategy is. The American politico-strategic tendency is to forget about steps two and three (laughs) and to define a strategy as a set of aspirations. And if the strategy doesn't work at first,
2: to say them louder. (laughs) <laughs> and it's that, also the strategy that my wife and I get in a fight. Yeah, so exactly. Of, uh, and, uh,
1: and it's just not a hugely effective uh, strategy. So I think the tide of history is mo- is moving our way. People are seeing many more problems in everything they are trying to do. People are scared to be dependent on them. People are seeing them close to uh, Putin and seeing what Putin has done and going, gee, we probably don't want to be too dependent on this. But but, is what we're going to do to force them to choose when they're scared to choose? Or is what we're going to do wait, respect, build linkages and all of that. And that's, I think, the approach we should be taking uh, to uh, China at this kind of challenging moment.
2: Well, it's, a, it's a really insightful point. And since we might not have time for two more questions, I was going to ask about stakeholder capitalism. But backstage, we were talking about um, something more personal. So a little backstory here. Um, at the Department of the Treasury, um, uh, uh, Larry was actually the first boss in her first job to Sheryl Sandberg uh, who became the chief operating officer of Facebook. Um, I was uh, around 28 years old when I started working at Facebook and Sheryl became a mentor of mine. Um, We were talking about that, just uh, the the, the meaning of mentorship uh, and well, i love your thoughts on it, just to end on that, because you've actually, I, I use the analogy of a coaching tree. I'm a big football fan. Uh, you've mentored a lot of people in your time, and I'd like to just end on that and your, your thoughts on that, and Cheryl, is a remarkable leader herself. I haven't mentored uh,
1: many people uh, like uh, Cheryl. Um, she understood some very important things that made her invaluable to me uh, during that period. One, uh, when she interacted with anyone else, she was totally loyal. Yeah, you're right, but Larry insists. She was totally loyal to me. But when she was in a room behind closed doors, she didn't hesitate to tell me that I was full of shit. (laughs) (laughs) And since I sometimes was, that was an enormously valuable thing uh, that I appreciated. She understood that in order to succeed in a role as a chief of staff or special assistant, she had to work for the people who worked for us. Not for herself, and not just for me. And so, for example, when the Secretary of the Treasury travels, what usually happens is the secretary does a motorcade, and the Secretary of the Treasury sits in the front, in the front car in the motorcade with uh, the chief with you know whoever they're closest to, and relaxes. When we traveled, Cheryl insisted, that every member of the delegation get one ride with me. And, you know, there were career Treasury employees who'd never been in a car with the Secretary of the Treasury before, for whom that was a big deal. It meant Cheryl had less access, but she was uh, completely, uh, uh, completely secure in that. And Cheryl understood. Cheryl understood what a certain number of people in this next generation don't that mentorship loyalty was a two way uh, street. She expected me to, and I was happy and honored to do everything I could to help her and to advance her career and to teach her and to give her opportunity. But she was also doing everything she could to help me succeed and was hugely focused on doing as good a job she could at the moment and not just on her rosy future, you know? One, one other thing I learned from her and from uh, her close friend, Marnie Levine, who subsequently worked with me, and it's a lesson about being in an organizations that stuck with me. On the rare occasions when they screwed something up, and they sometimes did, they would come to me and they would say, I screwed the such and such up. And they would explain the screw up. And the way they explained it was always twice as bad as it actually was and made it seem like twice as big a deal as it actually was. And I would listen, and I would absorb it and think it through. And then I would respond by explaining how it wasn't nearly as bad as they said it was, and it was going to be fine, and it was going to work out, and all that. Now, I'm really not that sweet a guy. And <laughs> if they had explained it in a way that suggested it was only half as bad as it was, or they had hoped I wouldn't notice, and I had noticed, I would have felt a full need to be extremely clear about how <laughs> serious uh, it was. So those are some examples of things I sort of uh, learned and I hope hope Cheryl learned something about being a mentor from uh, our work together, and I hope uh, Brett, you were a beneficiary of that, judging by the fact that you're that you're sitting here. Things have worked out rather well uh, for uh, for uh, you. And I hadn't realized that I now deserve credit. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, I I really, really, Brett, I think one basis point of Salesforce will be enough. <laughs> uh, I mean, it will be enough. I mean, I taught Cheryl, and Cheryl taught you, but you know, I'm not I'm not greedy. I'm not greedy. One basis. One it's basis. Just, it's <laughs> just arithmetic. One basis. Uh.
2: Will be plenty. And yeah, the secret sauce of economics
1: is arithmetic.
2: Yeah. Um, Well, uh, Secretary Summers, uh, on behalf of everyone at Dreamforce, thank you for coming here today. It's one of the most complex economies in new worlds. And to have your insights shared with everyone here, uh, we're so grateful. Can we give a round of applause for Secretary Summers? (laughs)
0: All right. I hope you enjoyed our special coverage of Dreamforce. To hear and see more, head over to Salesforce Plus. That's salesforce.com plus, where you can find so much more from this year's Dreamforce. And we'll be bringing you more highlights throughout the years. Blazing Trails is a production of Salesforce Studios, produced by Rachel Levin and engineered by Ryan Kleeman and Michelle Luong with original music from Andrew Duncan. I'm Michael Revo. Thanks for listening.